This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, there are three stories of people making deals, and that includes the story of Rumpelstiltskin from the Grimm Brothers. You'll see how, if you're taking a road trip, a pet fly can either be a fun toy for the kids or a snack on the go. We'll also see a smith go knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door with a sledgehammer. On the Creature of the Week, it's the personification of Heatstroke, who just wants you to take a nap at your desk. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 45. Let's make a deal. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Today's stories are about people, or creatures, engaging in trade. For things in life, the value of something is often based on the circumstances at the time. What can be worthless to one person can be life-saving to another, just a few steps down the road. Finding the true value of something isn't always easy. For instance, what's the value of a soul? What's the value of a name? What's the value of a life? The characters in the stories today look at these questions in very different ways. The first is a story from Japanese folklore. The second is one about a deal with the devil from Europe. And the third is the much-requested story of the mysterious imp, Rumpelstiltskin, collected by the Brothers Grimm. Wait, so is he sleeping here again? One priest asked another, referring to this stinky, dirty man who was in fact laying out some straw in front of the altar of cannon. The Buddhist priest sighed. All right. I'll go talk to him. The priest said, Hey, so I noticed you've been sleeping here for a few days, and you don't really have any food or water or anything. What's your plan here? Oh, no plan, the man said. Maybe I'll die here. I'm not exactly sure. But you're right. I don't have anything or anyone now. I'm planning to throw myself on Cannon's mercy. Or die. Or both. Okay, the priest said. Well, if you die here, you'll pollute the temple. Well... The young man said, I guess you better hope I don't die here, and went to sleep. The priest stood up and returned to the others. Over the next three weeks, the young man slept in the temple. The priests, really not wanting him to die here and pollute the place, brought him enough food for him to stay alive, and he either didn't notice or didn't care that they really did not want him here. Also, really quickly, this is a Buddhist temple. The topic of deities in Buddhism is a complex one and we won't really be addressing it here today. Suffice to say that here, the young man has set himself up in front of the altar of Canon, who is referred to as a goddess in some texts. And she's the goddess of mercy and compassion. She's the one to whom the young man is praying. Okay, back to the story. On the morning of the 22nd day, he had a dream. A dream so real that it was like it was actually happening in the room. Behind one of the curtains in the room, he thought he heard a voice. You have some nerve staying here for three weeks, the voice said. Have you considered the things that you've done in your life to lead you to this state? Regardless, your plea is touching to Canon, And Canon, the goddess, has a remedy for you. Leave immediately. On the way, though, you can take whatever your hand closes on after you cross the threshold of the temple, and you can keep it. The man woke up, or was already awake, and leapt to his feet. He had finally received a message from Canon and he would leave this place. 
he said goodbye to the suddenly very happy priests who gave him some money since he was finally leaving. Going toward the exit, he saw, outside, a beautiful horse and carriage. That'll do, he thought to himself. He wondered if his hand closed on that, if he would get the whole thing or just the horse. But as he was pondering this question, he crossed the threshold of the temple and tripped on it. He landed face down in the dust and struggled to his feet. Then he noticed something. He found that, upon standing, he had accidentally closed his hand around something. It was a piece of straw. This was Cannon's gift. He sighed, and as he got up, he watched the horse galloping away with the carriage. He looked at this dirty, bent piece of straw and shrugged. He put it away and walked off down the road. Having no place to go, he wasn't in any particular hurry. After an hour, though, a horsefly was buzzing around his face. He really did not want to get bitten, though he couldn't swat the thing. Then, almost out of instinct, he used a skill that had kept him alive in darker times in his life. He snatched the horsefly from the air. It was nearly automatic, but he almost popped the fly into his mouth. Realizing that he wasn't that hungry, he decided to save this protein-packed little morsel for later. He delicately looped the straw around one end of the fly, and he tied the other end of the straw to a stick. Now, he had a straw from Cannon and a pet fly. This day was looking marginally better. A half hour later, he saw carriages kicking up dust on the road. They were going to visit the temple the man had left earlier that day. It was full of servants, beautiful women, and one pretty boy, the story says. It's an odd detail, but when they passed the man with the pet fly, the pretty boy screamed to stop the carriage and told one of the servants to find out what that dirty vagabond was carrying and get it for him. Now, the servant leaped down from the carriage and approached the man, telling the man to give him the fly on the stick. The pretty young master is asking for it. The poor man shrugged. Sure, he told the servant. It was a present from Cannon, I hope you know. But if it strikes your pretty young master's fancy, then he can have it. No charge. He gave the servant the branch with the horsefly buzzing around it and continued on his way. Wait, he heard, just as the carriage was about to leave. The servant, having delivered the fly to the pretty boy, now had something for the poor man. Three tangerines, wrapped in paper, from one of the women, for the gift for her insufferable son. It was the least she could do. The poor man looked at the tangerines. It was a much better meal than a horsefly. He thanked the servant and the carriage left. The young man found a stick and slung the tangerines over his back. He continued on down the road. Whistling and thinking of his sweet, juicy tangerine dinner, he saw something else on the road ahead. Three servants on horses, obviously panicked. The young man quickened his pace, just in time to see a young woman that they were escorting dropped to the road, unconscious. The poor man, when he talked to the servants, learned that the distinguished lady had been determined to make the trip to the temple on foot, while fasting, and poorly provisioned. The servants were in a panic. They sent one back on the road to the nearest town, but it wasn't close at all. The woman could die here in the meantime. Enter our hero. He felt the weight of his tangerine dinner on his back, and sighed. Here, he said, handing the servants the tangerines. We all know she'll die before the servant comes back with anything. Give her these. 
The servants were grateful and sliced the tangerines. The poor man watched every last drop drain into the mouth of the woman, who needed it more than him. The servants told him to wait around for the woman to regain consciousness, and once the other servant returned with the food, then they might be able to give him something to eat. When the woman woke, she said, Yes, of course we can give him something to eat for saving my life. They cleared some space on the side of the road, and in the late morning, they all had lunch together. The woman was nice, but she was going to the temple, and the poor man away from it. He said his goodbyes and ventured on. But she, like the carriage before her, yelled out for him to wait. She had something for him. It wasn't much, but it was what they could spare on the road. It was just three bolts of fabric she was going to have the servants turn into dresses when she got back to Kyoto. It was the least she could give the young man for saving her life. He carried the fabric under his arm and smiled at the woman. She told him that she lived in Kyoto and to look her up if he ever made it there. He walked for most of the afternoon. It was hot and eventually he found an inn by the side of the road. He spent all the money that the priest had given him on a room for the night. The next morning, he awoke and ate the breakfast provided for him by the inn. Walking outside in the cool of the morning, bolts of cloth under his arm, he saw a samurai riding by on the most beautiful horse the young man had ever seen. Suddenly, the samurai began to panic and leapt from the horse. He stood by in anxiety while his attendants rushed to help the horse, but they could only get its saddle off before the thing collapsed on the ground, dead. They had another horse with them, and the samurai, clearly upset, said that this horse had been nothing but trouble. He took one of their extra horses and continued up the road, telling his attendants to deal with the horse carcass in the middle of the road. Looking at the horse, the young man saw something. Once the samurai was out of sight, the young man approached the attendant. The attendant told the young man that he had hoped to skin the horse, but he wouldn't have time to dry the hide while traveling. The young man showed him one of the bolts of cloth and said, well, how about you trade me for it? You want to give me this super expensive cloth for a horse corpse? The attendant said, deal. The attendant grabbed the bolt of cloth, leapt atop his own horse, and was gone before the young man could change his mind. But the young man wouldn't change his mind. He watched the attendant ride out of sight and then rushed to a nearby well. He ran the bucket to the horse, gave it water, and prayed. After a few seconds, it snorted back to consciousness. The young man sighed. He had a new horse. He gave the horse the morning to recover. It had been ridden too hard through the night, and it had nearly died. He let it rest until late afternoon. In the meantime, he traded the second bolt of cloth for a super cheap saddle and bridle. He was only able to go so far until night fell, and it wouldn't be safe to be on the road. Still, with the horse, he had covered more distance than he would have been able to walk. He traded the last bolt of cloth for a stable for his horse, lodging, food, and clothes that weren't smelly rags. The next morning, he awoke and bathed. He got on his horse early and rode for the capital, Kyoto. The next morning, he rode to the southern edge of Kyoto and was faced with a dilemma. He was worried about riding the horse into town and being accused as a horse thief. He had bargained for a dead horse, and the samurai was a samurai, and he just a poor man whose total wealth consisted of a horse and a partially digested breakfast. It was just then that he heard a yelling from his right. It was some old man running at him, asking where he found the horse. The young man was so surprised by the old man that before he thought to ride away, the old man had the horse by the reins. The young man started to jump off the horse. This old man obviously knew the samurai, 
Maybe the young man could get out of Kyoto before being arrested as a horse thief. The young man was a few steps away when he heard the old man say he would pay him anything for the horse. The young man cocked his head. So you don't know where this horse came from? No, the old man said. Oh, okay, the young man said. Well, I definitely do because I totally honestly purchased it. And do you want to buy it off me? The old man said, absolutely. They didn't haggle much. The old man really wanted the horse and was a millionaire. So he paid perhaps way too much for the horse and threw in some rice fields in Toba too. They shook hands and the young man gave them the horse. He invited the young man in for lunch and the young man happily agreed. Seated for the meal, the young man was chatting with the old man when he heard a sound at the door. So you did find me, he heard. It was a woman's voice. He looked up and saw the woman he had helped with the tangerines. She looked amazing, given that she wasn't just semi-conscious and covered in sweat, and he also looked almost completely different since he wasn't covered in smelly rags. The pair smiled simultaneously, and the father was confused. You two know each other? When the father learned that the young man had saved his daughter's life, he insisted that he stay there, since the young man didn't have anywhere else to go. The pair hit it off, and by the end of the year, they were married. The young man learned all about how to manage the estate, and when the old man died a few years later, the young man and his wife inherited his millions. Even though he couldn't see it at the time, the straw that Cannon had given him when he tripped out of the temple was the greatest possible gift. It had been worth an inheritance of millions and a happy new life for the young man and his wife. So you probably guessed what was going to happen about halfway through the story. I really like this one though. I like how it illustrates that opportunities can present themselves in the most mundane, common things. The young man, by accepting what had been given to him and making the best of it, and using kindness, generosity, and shrewdness, had his life changed by a simple piece of straw. This just says that no matter where you are in your life, it can get better, and sometimes in the most unexpected ways. There are many different versions of the story. One version ends with different gods and goddesses in a drinking contest. There are pears instead of tangerines, and the young man gets them when he gives the straw to a pear dealer who shoves it up his nose to stop his nosebleed. It also gives a bit more backstory on the young man. He had been forced out of his parents' home because of poverty, and they died. And then he threw himself on the mercy of the goddess. Also, this is a super popular story too. If you've ever played a Zelda game, you've seen the influence of the story with the trading game side quests. Millions of dollars, land, and gold aren't really as cool as the Master Sword or even the Bigron Sword, but they're probably a little more useful in modern day life. The next story will show you why it's kind of a bad idea to make a deal with the devil. And that will start right after this. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Just last week, I remembered a book I really liked. It's called Ready Player One by Ernest Cline. I can't really sum it up in seconds, but if you've understood any of the sometimes cringy nerdy references I make to 80s movies or D&D, then you'll love this book. Even if you haven't caught the references, actually. My wife doesn't really fit in the nerdy demographic. She's way cooler than me. And she's the one who recommended this book to me. 
Better yet, like many of the books on Audible, it's narrated by an actor. In this case, it's Will Wheaton. If you're not into semi-dystopian sci-fi that somehow manages to pull off Ferris Bueller references, there are over 180,000 titles on audible.com. It's a great way to read all those books that you've been meaning to. I mean, if you're hearing this, you already have a great setup for listening to stories, so why not? Their app is free, and it works on iPhones, iPad, Android, and Windows Phone, as well as the Kindle Fire, and over 500 MP3 players. And if you don't like the book you chose, you can exchange it for another at any time, no questions asked. Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com myths today to start your free trial. Again, you can show your support for this podcast and get a free 30-day trial at audible.com myths. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. If you don't already know, Blue Apron is an awesome service that sends you seasonal, fresh, sustainably sourced ingredients and the recipes to turn those ingredients into fantastic meals. Aside from it being extremely convenient to have pre-portioned ingredients shipped to you, there's no measuring or anything like that, it really reduces food waste too. There's just the exact amount of food you need for the recipe, and that's it. The beef is humanely raised, chickens are free-range, and regenerative farming practices are used for the produce. Not only that, but you get to learn something new and spend time with friends and family while cooking. It's less than $10 per person for a delicious meal, and research shows that Blue Apron families cook together nearly three times more often. The meals for September are great. You can check out this week's menu, and you can get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com legends. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com legends. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. The next story is about the master of all masters. The smith had made a deal with the devil. It wasn't so much that he could be rich or powerful or anything like that. No, he had just asked the devil for the ability to be a really great smith. The best, actually. The master over all masters. He would be the best at what he does for seven years. And then the devil could come take him. He signed the agreement, and the very next day, he had a very subtle sign hung outside his door that said, in giant gold letters, here dwells the master over all masters. I mean, if you know the devil is coming for you in seven years, then I guess you don't have to waste time with humility. Months later, God and St. Peter were walking along the road together in medieval Germany. They stopped talking when God saw the sign. He sighed and went to knock on the door of the barn. Master of all masters, huh? God said. That's what the sign says, the smith said. But if you can't read, you'll have to wait for someone to spell it out for you. I'm busy being amazing at smithing. The next moment, before the Lord responded, a man came in with his horse, looking for the smith to replace the shoes. The smith said he was pretty busy, but God responded, Mind if I take this one? The Lord asked. And the smith, not recognizing Almighty God staring back at him, said, Sure. There wasn't anything the surprisingly radiant stranger could do to mess up the shoes so badly that the smith couldn't fix it. God smiled and went to work. First, God didn't mess around with prying the shoes off the horse's feet. He went straight to the horse and popped one of the legs off like it was a cheap toy. The horse didn't even notice, and God walked to the furnace and set the leg in it. He went to work perfectly repairing the shoe before popping the leg painlessly back on the horse. He did this with the other three legs and sent the man on his way. Huh, you're not really a bad smith yourself, the smith said. 
Oh, you really think so? Said God. Then they were interrupted by an old, old woman. It was the smith's mother. She was so stooped and weak that she could barely walk to the barn and tell her son that dinner was ready. Watch this, God said, smiling at the smith. God picked up the smith's mother, took a couple of steps, and threw her bodily into the furnace. The smith screamed as God rotated his mother in the fire, hitting her with a hammer. In minutes, he helped her out. She was, surprisingly, still alive. And even more astounding was that she was not only unscathed, but she was young and beautiful again, younger even than her son. She thanked and thanked the stranger and invited everyone in for dinner. Over dinner, the smith admitted that the stranger was a better smith. The smith said that it had been wrong and arrogant of him to put up that sign. He would take today's lessons to heart. He thanked the stranger. And that's when they heard someone outside. It was another customer. It was getting late, but the smith said he could do it. He could replace the shoes. He had just been shown another way to shoe a horse. The smith tried to tell the man that he didn't need to go home. It was super fast, but the man said he would be back in an hour or so. The smith shrugged and led the horse into the barn. The smith spent 10 minutes pulling at the leg, but it just wouldn't pop off the way that it did when the other guy pulled. How was the smith supposed to replicate the technique if he couldn't get the horse's leg off? The smith shrugged and gave up on the pulling and went to get the axe. In an hour and a half, the smith was able to calm the owner of the horse down after the smith had unwittingly killed the horse. There had been a lot more shrieking and bucking when the smith tried to take the legs off, and when he set them in the furnace, they just burned. Now he had to pay the man the price of one and a half horses just to keep quiet about this whole thing. And he also had to clean up and dispose of a horse corpse. Wiping the blood from his hands, he walked outside. He was confused and wanted another shot. Then he saw a very elderly beggar woman walking down the road, asking for alms. Hmm the smith thought to himself. The old lady put up a fight as the smith carried her inside, but the smith just thought that she didn't know it was good for her. The smith was going to throw the woman in the fire just like the stranger had thrown his mother in the fire. He was going to make her young again. She really did not see it the same way. And when the screaming in the furnace finally stopped, the smith saw why. She, too, had been burned up. That was a bad thing, said God, standing at the door. Yeah, you're telling me, the smith said. And then he realized the stranger was speaking of the woman. Oh, her, the smith continued. She was old and there won't be anyone worrying about her. I was talking about my deal with the devil. If this is the way he holds to his agreements, with me not being the master of all masters at smithing, but accidentally murdering people, then I'm starting to think that making a deal with the devil is a bad thing. Then scales fell from the smith's eyes. He realized that he was looking at God himself and St. Peter by his side. God looked at the smith lovingly and asked him, if you might have three wishes from me, what would you wish for? I can't tell if our smith friend is incredibly smart or incredibly stupid. He looked at God standing before him and said, if you give me three wishes, I'll let you know what I would wish for. I can picture God rolling his eyes and saying, sure, three wishes, though really, I'm sure God already knows. 
and they were oddly specific wishes. The first wish was for a pear tree out front, and that anyone who climbed it wouldn't be able to come down until the smith said so. The second was an easy chair, where whoever sat in it wouldn't be able to get up until the smith said so. The third was a steel purse, where anyone who entered would not be able to leave until the smith said so. That's when St. Peter spoke up. He told the smith that his wishes were terrible wishes. The smith was talking to God himself. The smith should have asked for God's grace, goodwill, and, I don't know, forgiveness for killing an old woman like ten minutes ago. As a quick aside, St. Peter didn't say that last part, and the story is curiously silent on the smith killing an old lady. Neither God nor St. Peter address it. I want to believe that God quietly brought the woman back after the encounter with the smith, but the story says no such thing. God stopped St. Peter, said the smith had his wishes, and then the pair left without another word. Six years later, the smith was working on a horseshoe when he heard the devil knock at the door. He was here to take the smith. The smith sighed and told the devil that he knew today was the day. In fact, he just wanted to shoe his final horse. It would only take him a few minutes and for his trouble, there's a pear tree out front. If the devil wants to climb it and grab a piece of fruit, the smith will be right along. The devil said that, well, that wasn't really the deal, but hey, free fruit. He climbed up the tree, grabbed the nicest pear he could find, and then couldn't move. He stayed up there till evening, until the smith came out of his workshop. The devil yelled down, what's with all this? The smith said he was sorry. The shoe was looking a little more difficult than he thought. It shouldn't take him long. Maybe just, I don't know, four years? The devil looked at him and scowled. Four years. The smith said, yeah, you can hang out in that tree for four years, right? That won't be any big deal. The devil said no, he could not hang out in the tree for four years. He had horribly one-sided deals to make and smoking contests to lose. The smith told him that, oh, that's too bad. Hey, you know what? How about we tack on an amendment to the deal and you come back in four years to get me? Otherwise, I'm gonna have to ask you to stay up in that tree the whole time. Seeing his predicament, the devil agreed and the smith let him down. The devil couldn't take him now because of his honor as the devil and he left. So you can probably see where this is going. The devil returned four years later and the man still seemed to be working on the same shoe. The devil said, okay, you seriously can't be still working on that shoe. The man said he was almost done. Just go pick some fruit. Ha, <laughs> just kidding. He already picked the devil some fruit. And if he just wanted to have a seat in that easy chair, the smith would be ready to go momentarily. Four more years later, the devil showed up at the door. No sitting, no messing around, he was taking the smith now. And the smith agreed. He put down his tools and left immediately with the devil. They were walking along the road, and the smith was making small talk. Then the subject moved to the talk of small things, namely the devil. The smith asked the devil if he could change his size. The smith had heard the devil could grow super large and shrink to almost nothing. The devil said that, yeah, of course he could. The smith said, doubtful. The devil stopped him. He could totally do it, right? I mean, I don't need to prove it to you. The smith said that he bet the devil couldn't even fit inside his steel purse. Ten minutes later, the smith was running back with the devil locked inside his steel coin purse. When he was back in his smithy, he remarked aloud that he was so worried about things falling out of his purse, he should weld it shut. He laid it on the furnace and made the furnace red hot. 
The devil had been yelling the whole time, but things really became frantic when the purse got hot. The smith said he wished he could help, but the devil knew the saying. Strike while the iron is hot. I mean, it's steel, an iron alloy, so maybe it still applies. We should see if it still applies. After about three hits with a sledgehammer, the devil agreed. Again, on his honor as the devil, to never come near the smith again. The smith was released from his payment, and the devil left, burning and smoking, never wanting to see the smith again. Then, the smith saw the error in his ways. He repented of his evil deeds, sought God's grace, and lived a pious life. Just kidding. He kept doing the same things he had always done, though he really cooled it on the involuntary manslaughter. I have to say that many stories of the devil getting tricked end right here. The hero has been freed forever from the possibility of hell, and it doesn't really address what happens next. This one's different though. As the smith got older, he knew he would have to make amends. He walked down the road to the crossroads between heaven and hell that apparently existed in medieval Germany. He knew where he had to go. He had to apologize to the devil. 10 minutes later, he was back at the crossroads. They had actually padlocked the gates of hell against him coming in. Now he really knew what he must do. He had to go present himself to heaven. He had to see if he could get in. So he grabbed his sledgehammer from back home. And this is where things get weird. Well, things got weird when he chucked an old woman into his fireplace. Anyway, arriving at the gates of heaven, he saw a line of people and St. Peter starting to open the door. He knew that this was his chance. He swung the hammer and it hit the gate. The gate flung open wide. And as people were wondering who was flinging hammers at the gates of heaven, the smith took the opportunity to run inside. Maybe. The story actually ends saying that he threw the sledgehammer at the door and ran inside. Or he didn't. And no one knows what happened to him. The end. The story kind of reminds me of Stingy Jack. He, too, tricked the devil into leaving him alone. The only problem? He wasn't so audacious as to try to force his way into heaven. And he was rejected by them as well. He was then forced to wander, cold and lonely, between the worlds of the living and the dead. He was given a soul ember for warmth and he put it in a turnip so it wouldn't burn him. That was Jack's lantern, and one possible origin of the jack-o'-lantern. The final story for today is Rumpelstiltskin. This is from the Brothers Grimm and published in 1857. The miller had an audience with the king. This was big. This was really big. He could feel the flop sweat on his back, armpits, forehead, pretty much everywhere. He was psyching himself up before he went in. He just had to keep it together and not say anything stupid when he was in front of the king in his court. My daughter can spin straw into gold, the miller said. He was confused. Where did he even get that? Straw into gold? No one can spin straw into gold. He was in the middle of thinking that maybe that was one of the stupid things he shouldn't say when he noticed the entire court was staring at him. Your daughter can spin straw into gold, the king said. Yes, definitely. Is that something that will be of interest to you? The miller said, chastised himself again. Just stop saying your daughter can do the impossible. Why are you doing this, he thought to himself. Yeah, that would be of considerable interest to me, the king said. Have her brought here tomorrow, and I'll put her to the test. That will be all. With that, the king stood up and left. The miller returned to his mill by the river. He walked in the door, smiled sheepishly, and told his daughter, Hey, so 
some fun news. You get to go to the palace tomorrow and maybe live there forever. It's so fun. Let's get you packed up. Also, you know how to spin, right? The next day, the miller's daughter had a pleasant dinner with the king. That evening, he showed her to her bedchamber, or what she thought was going to be her bedchamber. It was just a room full of hay. The miller's daughter said that this must be some mistake. Where's her bed? Oh, bed? No, none of that, the king said. I'm just going to have you work all night, spinning straw into gold. You know, like your dad said you could do. Anyway, I'll get out of your hair and let you get to work. Remember to spin all night. Oh, and wow, this almost slipped my mind. If you don't have all this straw turned to gold by sunrise, I'll cut off your head. All right, well, let the guards know if you need anything. Night. He shut the door behind him and left the stunned miller's daughter, surrounded by piles of straw. She didn't even try. She knew it was an impossibility. She would have been mad at her father, too, if she thought she would ever see him again. She laid down in the straw and went to sleep. She woke in a pile of tear-drenched hay when she heard something at the door. It wasn't morning yet. Who was there? If she was convinced she wasn't dreaming, she would have screamed. It was a grotesque little imp a terrifying little monster standing about three feet tall and wearing funny clothes. And why are you crying? The thing asked. She told it the story and then asked if he just came in the door. Is it seriously not locked? He said, don't worry about it. He could spin the straw to gold for her. She just had to give him something. She searched herself. She had only two things of any value on her. A necklace? She asked. Yeah, okay, the imp said and got to work. The miller's daughter was in and out the rest of the night, waking up periodically to see the pile of straw go down and the pile of gold rise. When it was nearly morning, the thing was finished. He took his payment, one necklace for a night's work, which actually seems like a pretty good deal, and the creature opened the door and left. The next moment, the king burst in with his accountant and executioner. He wanted to have all of his bases covered. If you give a king a room full of gold, he's gonna want a larger room full of gold not letting her work in the day for some reason. The next night, he put her in a larger room full of straw, and again, she wept and waited. The imp showed up again, and this time, she traded a ring for his services. Again, the king burst in the door, and again, he was pleased at his room full of free gold. Give a king a larger room full of gold, and he's gonna want an even larger room full of gold. He's really just into gold and threatening young women. This isn't a give a mouse a cookie situation. That night, though, the miller's daughter was actually worried. I mean, more worried than usual. She had nothing left to trade the imp. When he arrived, she told him as much. Oh, no big deal, the imp said. I'll just take your firstborn child, after you become queen. The miller's daughter thought about it. Sure, selling children is a bad thing, but if she didn't, the king would kill her. The child didn't even exist yet, anyway. And if she didn't take the deal, the child wouldn't exist at all. She told the imp, that they had a deal. He spun all night, left in the morning, and at first light, the king came through the door. Instead of executing her or putting her through another terrible night working for him under the pain of death, he married her later on that day. I'm actually not sure which one of those is the worst. One year later, Queen Miller's daughter sat with her beautiful baby boy. She kissed him on the forehead as he fell asleep, and then she sensed something, a presence she had not felt since, and she gasped. There, in the corner of the room, was the imp. <laughs>
I've come for what you promised me a year ago, he said. He was dark and serious and threatening. She began weeping again and offered him everything she could. She had access to money now. Whatever he wanted could be his. He said he didn't really want money and that makes sense, I guess. I mean, if he can turn straw to gold, he has no need at all for money. He could probably single-handedly wreck the economy. Anyway, we're getting off track. No, the imp said. The heir to the kingdom was much more valuable to him. Now, if she didn't mind, he would be taking his baby and leaving. She did mind, though, and began weeping and screaming when he approached. He calmed her down and said that he may be in the habit of buying children, but he's a reasonable guy. Here's what he'll do. If she can guess his name in three days' time, then he'll let the whole thing go. She agreed, and he was gone. Three days later, she had tried everything she could think of. Still recovering from childbirth, she had to have the servants put together lists of names. But none of them were correct when the imp came on subsequent nights. Now, he would be there in a matter of hours. She was sitting outside, enjoying possibly the last sunset with her son, when she heard someone breathing heavily. It was a servant. He didn't have another list in hand, but he said he had great news. Last night, he was walking to the next town when he heard something in the woods. Going against every rule of traveling in dark medieval forests, he left the path when he heard singing. It ended well for him, though, when he heard a song from an imp about taking a child from a royal mother. If she doesn't guess his name, is Rumpelstiltskin. So yeah, the servant said, I'm going to guess that it's Rumpelstiltskin. Final answer. Moments after the servant went inside, while Queen Miller's daughter was nursing her baby as the sunset, the imp appeared in the shadows beside her. This is the final night, Queen. What's my name? Conrad, the queen asked. No. Harry. No. Rumpelstiltskin. No, wait, what? Who told you that? That's it, right? Rumpelstiltskin? He kept demanding to know which demon told her, but didn't even give her time to answer. He became hopping mad and began pounding his foot on the ground. He pounded it so hard that his right foot was in the ground up to the waist, with him basically being sideways in the ground. He was completely enraged and not really thinking super clearly. He was embarrassed and angry and just wanted to leave, but he was stuck. In his rage, he grabbed his left leg and tried to wrench it from the ground. He did pull his body up from the ground, but not all of it. The queen heard a horrible tearing as, right in front of her, Rumpelstiltskin tore himself in two, from the groin to the shoulder. She looked on it with a mixture of horror and relief. On one hand, she and her baby were safe. On the other, a mythological creature had just torn itself in half in front of her. With that, the queen stood and took her baby inside. As the sun sank completely below the forest, the weird little creature that had tormented her slash saved her had died a gruesome death. Now, she got to go back to safety, to the husband who had threatened her life if she didn't do the impossible, thus necessitating the presence of Rumpelstiltskin in the first place. So that's not actually the first telling of Rumpelstiltskin. This one was included in a later version of the Grimm stories. The only real difference is Rumpelstiltskin ripping himself in half at the end. 
the Grimm brothers published their first set of stories when fairy tales and folklore weren't really for children, and subsequent versions were for younger audiences in particular. That oftentimes included things being, surprisingly, much more violent. Kids in the 1800s loved violence, and really liked seeing justice served in the most gruesome ways possible. Next week, we'll be starting the story of Jason and the Argonauts from Greek mythology. It's a super famous quest that involves dragon fights, legendary heroes, and old lady piggyback rides. I want to say thanks to Simi Roach, Anna Fire NZE, Rachel Kanyas, CG Australia, Jaxta92, Kimothy Chun, Corvey M, Knuckle Swift, Cats on Acid, Rob Learmouth, Arjun and Chenswick, Torito Chucho, Becky Friedman, Vicky J. Weibels, Lula BW, Cruage, Manif Palmer, Snapper Ann, Pieces of Gold, McFearless One, Lucy B. 1986, and Paradise Moriarty for the reviews on iTunes. Thank you all so much. Thank you all so much for the reviews. I really like hearing from you. If you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is the best place, and you can find the show there or on the podcast app at itunes.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of two daddy long leg spiders online, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of this show that aren't an incredible waste of money. Seriously, I linked the spiders in the discussion post, and you can get 12 for the low, low price of $40. For the membership and not live spiders from my backyard, check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Polednica from Slovenia. Are you overworked? Tired? Do you really need a break? Well, the Polednica is here to help. She's a beautiful, tall woman wearing white, and she walks around fields looking out for workers, making sure they're taking their breaks, staying hydrated, and are happy and productive. Oh, you say you don't need a break? Maybe you're going to work through lunch and leave early. Well, you won't. She's so insistent that you look out for yourself and take a break that she'll cut your head off. If you're lucky. If you're not, she'll give you a heat stroke and afflict you with madness, drain your blood, or really make you take that break in that she will break your arms and legs. She'll quiz workers too, and if they fail, off with their heads. If you see her going from cubicle to cubicle at lunchtime, drop to the ground and immediately take your break until she meanders off. Male versions are known as polvoi, and the pair is thought to be the personification of heat stroke. Like the blue monk from Japanese folklore, the Polednica will take children who are running through fields. So once again, kids, I know it's incredibly tempting to run through barley fields, but it's almost always a bad idea. She also goes by the name Lady Midday, and she makes an appearance one way or another in many different Slavic and Germanic folklore traditions. So yeah, the next time you're caught sleeping at your desk, just say that you saw the Polednica coming and you really like keeping your head. I'm sure your boss will totally understand. That's it for this time. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Colmes. Other music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Pottington Bear. Links to still more music are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hold up. 